Amen and amen. One of the things the Apostle Paul says to the church in Colossians, uh, Colossae, Colossians 1, 5, and 6, is he praises them because the gospel is growing deeper in them and wider in the world. And that is our prayer for what happens here at the Summit Church, that the gospel will grow deep in you and then wider through you to places like Atlanta and Greensboro and to the ends of the earth. And I believe that by God's grace, that is what is happening. And if you are excited about that and you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. If you got a Bible this morning, I'd love for you to take it out and open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Um, We are in the second week of a series on the parables of Jesus from the book of Matthew called Listen. And we are in our second week in Matthew 13. And we're going to look at another parable Jesus told in that um, chapter of the Bible. Um, As you're turning there to Matthew 13, um, I'll tell you that when I was a little kid, like four or five years old, one of my favorite TV shows was called Rescue 911. Anybody remember this thing? this William Shatner, who was the Nicolas Cage of the late 70s and early 80s. Um, Rescue 911 was a show about firemen. And as with many young boys that age, firemen quickly became my heroes. I thought it was so cool when the alarm went off and they would jump on the pole and slide down the pole and they would jump into their um, uh, fire boots that were attached to their fire pants and they would jump in all at once and pull them up. And just in a matter of seconds, they would be dressed and in the truck and, and out the door. Well, the show made it seem like fires happened all the time. So I wanted to to be ready if one happened to our house. And so beside my bed, I tucked my jeans into my boots that I had so that I could just jump in and pull them up really quickly like they did. I even asked my parents if they would put a pole beside our back deck, back deck so I could slide down it in case of a fire. They never did, which was probably wise on their part. Uh, but maybe most importantly, I arranged all my favorite possessions on my bedside table so that in case of fire, I could grab what was important to me and be out the door and not leave anything behind. I can still remember as a five-year-old trying to think through what should go on that coveted bedside table slot. And while things changed from week to week, one of the consistent items that was there was a set of three or four of my favorite records. By the way, does anybody remember records? This was not when having a record collection was a cool hipster thing to do. It was when it was what we listened to. Yes, I know that some of you, this is surprising, but I am that old. I know that some of you think that I'm in my mid-20s, but it is true. It is true. I am indeed in my early 30s. Uh, Well, one of my favoritest of all my records was my read-along Davy Crockett book. Uh, my mom had told me as a, a boy that our family's heritage on her side went back to, he was our great, Davy Crockett was our great, 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 great uncle, which I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, by the way, if you're listening on podcast um, there in Texas, you're welcome for your state. You owe that to my mom's side of the family. Um, I kept that record there right along with some of my other favorite stuff so that if the house burned down, I could be out the door with that stuff and at least preserve the family lineage. Well, over the years, what I would keep there on my bedside table, metaphorically speaking, has changed, but I still think it's a good mental exercise to go through, to think through what you would hold on to if you had to walk away from everything else. And just for the record, for the record, my Davy Crockett records are still on that list for me. They now sit proudly next to my complete box set of all 89 of Nicolas Cage's masterful films. By the way, you can hate on him all you want, but you name me another actor of his age that has 80 nine, that's not an exaggeration, films that he has been in. The point is this, the value that you place on something is shown by what you'll give up for it, right? That's kind of obvious. The value that you place on something is demonstrated, not by how excited you are about it, but by what you'll give up, what you'll leave behind in order to hold on to it. 
Well, I share that because when Jesus talked about finding the kingdom in Matthew 13, he used ideas and terms like these. He taught us that finding the kingdom was like discovering something of such incredible value that you would gladly walk away from everything else in your life in order to obtain it. He taught that by the, by, through the two shortest parables that he ever told, and they're in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. We're just going to walk through them. By the way, this might be the shortest passage of Scripture I have ever preached through here at the Summit Church. Do not worry, however. You will still get the full-length sermon, but it is a very short passage. Hey, here's, here's the first parable. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a treasure that was buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, second parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless, or some of your translations say, one very precious pearl, and he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Two very similar stories that make the same point. In the first story, a man stumbles onto a treasure randomly. We don't know exactly what he was doing in that field that he was in. He did not own the field. Maybe he had been hired to plow it, or maybe he was taking a shortcut home, or maybe he was burying a dead body or whatever. We just don't know. But the point is, while he is there, he uncovers, he stumbles onto a priceless treasure. By the way, who has not dreamed of having something like this happen to them? I used to think that guys with the metal detectors that would walk up and down the beach were a little nerdy, and I still think that for the record, but recently I read about Terry Herbert, a guy in Great Britain who, using his metal detector, discovered more than $5 million of gold and silver objects that dated back to the 7th century AD, discovered them in his neighbor's backyard. Well, who's laughing now, right? I mean, that's like nerd's revenge. And by the way, after watching National Treasure, I am constantly tapping on old loose bricks and old churches or try to find coded messages and stained glass windows. Currently, I'm not allowed in Duke Chapel for just that reason right there. Um, Well, see, in Jesus' day, finding treasures like this was not all that uncommon. Uh, You see, back then, they didn't really have banks per se. So if you had a huge pile of money and you wanted to keep it safe, you would bury it. And if your town was being attacked, if your town was being attacked and you didn't want the invading army to walk away with all your money, then quite often you'd go find a place and you would bury all your possessions really quickly so they couldn't confiscate it. But then a lot of times the person who buried the treasure would die in the attack and so nobody would know where that treasure was. In fact, in one of the archaeological digs at Qumran, we found, or we, I wasn't part of the party, but um, they found a map with 64 different places that people in that community had buried treasure to keep it from being discovered by invading armies. So the point is, many people in Jesus' day lived with the excitement of the possibility of stumbling onto some old buried treasure. So that when Jesus tells this story, they're all really interested. They're like, they kind of start leaning in like, ooh, this could happen to me maybe. Well, I will say that this story, while it is interesting, there does seem to be somewhat of a small ethical dilemma in it. Um, The ethical dilemma is this, is the guy who found the treasure morally obligated to tell the person who owns the field that he discovered it in? I think that's a fascinating question, but Jesus skips right over it. In fact, the guy in Jesus' story acts more than a little shady. It says that he reburied the treasure. In other words, he put it back in, covered it back up so nobody would know about it, doesn't tell anybody, and he straight away goes to the owner's house and says, hey, how much you want for that worthless piece of dirt out there? 
And the guy said, well, why would you want that piece of land? And the man just evidently just makes something up. He's like, I don't know, I want to build a mini golf on it, or I just bought a flock of yaks and they need somewhere to graze, or um, I heard a voice that said, if you build it, they will come, or something like that. And so they finally agree on a price, and evidently it's a pretty steep price because in order to purchase this field, the man has to sell everything else he has just to get the money to buy this field. And then come the most important three words in the whole parable. In his joy, he gets rid of everything else to purchase the field. You see, normally, if you had to walk away from everything you owned, you would be devastated. Yet this man is elated with joy because the treasure he is gaining has far more value in his eyes than the value of what he is walking away from. So his sorrow over what he is losing is eclipsed by the joy in what he is gaining. This, Jesus says, this is like discovering the kingdom of God. The second parable, Jesus tells, makes the exact same point, just with a few small distinctions. This time, the one who discovers the treasure, which is a pearl of great price, is not a blue-collar worker. It's a very wealthy merchant. And unlike the first guy, this guy doesn't discover the treasure accidentally. He's made a lifetime out of hunting treasures. Pearls, by the way, were the most valuable jewel in the ancient world, mainly because they were so hard to get. They didn't have all the diving equipment that we have today, so in order to get one, you had to plunge into um, a fairly shallow you know, thing and, 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 and be able to, to find some you know, pearl that's down there. It was just much more difficult than it is today, and they were very hard to come by, so only the wealthiest of the wealthy had pearls. It was said that the majority of Cleopatra's worth, for example, was contained. The majority of her wealth was contained in two pearls that are valued in today's terms at over $4 billion dollars. Well, see, this merchant has made a living of buying and selling pearls, but this one that he discovers is, such, is of such exquisite beauty that he sells all of his other ones and all of his possessions and all of his businesses and all of his houses and all of his lands and liquidates all of his investments in order to purchase this one pearl. Two men, one blue collar, one white collar. One with relatively little, the other with quite a lot. One who was not looking for treasure, the other who was obsessed with it. One who was poor in common, the other rich and educated, yet both of them encountering something of such priceless value that it makes everything else in their lives look worthless by comparison. This, Jesus said, this is like discovering the kingdom of God. And I would tell you that these two very short and small parables teach us three massive things about the kingdom of God. Here's number one. By the way, I'll use the word gospel um, interchangeably for kingdom of God today, okay? Number one, they show us that the gospel, the kingdom of God, is hidden. This is a common theme throughout the book of Matthew. It's a theme that we saw last week, and it's reinforced right here again in these two parables. The gospel, the kingdom of God, is hidden. And because it is hidden, most people miss it. The Bible is going to explain this to us in a number of different ways. If you're taking notes, here's the first way. Letter A, the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus was hidden in a very ordinary earthly body. Isaiah 53 tells us that there was no comeliness in the Messiah that we should desire him. In other words, he was not physically impressive. He didn't look like you would think the divine son of God would look. I mean, it's a mystery, right? The son of God who designed the oceans and the stars and the nucleus of the atom and the, the human brain was born into the world through the messy process of childbirth and grew up among the poorest of the poor. He wore ordinary clothes. He ate ordinary food and his, his feet and his back got sore after standing all day just like the rest of us. He never led an army. He never won an award. He never won an election. 
And for that reason, a lot of people missed him. But see, that, that obscurity was intentional because God doesn't want people who only want to use him to gain power. He wants people who love him for him, who love what he loves, and who wouldn't just try to use him to get power and beauty for themselves. You see, had Jesus come in power and physical beauty, he would have attracted people to himself who only wanted to use him to get those things for themselves. So God hid his power in a very ordinary earthly disguise so that only those who were poor of spirit and pure in heart and only those who desired to know God for the right reasons could perceive him. It reminded me of that scene that I love so much at the end of Indiana Jones's Last Crusade. I know that's a movie that a lot of you probably are too young to have seen, but I know a number of you have seen it like me. Um, and at the last scene of that movie, they're trying to pick out which cup is the actual grail. And so one of the guys that's with Indiana Jones, who's a treasure seeker, he's very self-centered and he wants it for himself. Um, he and his partner pick out the cup they think is the real holy grail and he picks out a golden cup that's studded with diamonds and he holds it up and says, this would be the cup of the King of Kings. He dips it in the water and he drinks it, but instead of giving him life, it makes him age a hundred years in just an instant. And then he shrivels up and he turns into dust and he blows away. And the old Knight Templar says, he chose poorly. Right, remember that scene? It's a great scene. Oh, well, then Indiana Jones, you know, ever the erudite theologian who is not seeking treasure, but being a man that is pure of heart, he is trying to um, find healing for his dad who has been shot. He just loves his dad and wants to get the healing to him. Um, he looks through all the cups and he picks up this very plain looking cup and he says this, this would be the cup of a carpenter and he dips it in the water and he drinks it. And remember the old, old, uh, the old knight says, you have chosen wisely, wisely, right? Now, I wouldn't normally say that Indiana Jones movies are a great place to learn theology, but that's not very, that's not bad. God hides his power and his glory in a plain looking package, right? In the same way, letter B, the power of the gospel is hidden in its simplicity. The power of the gospel is hidden in its simplicity. The gospel message is just not that impressive on the surface, it's like I told you last week, it comes to us in the form of a preached word that you can set aside, you can ignore, you can argue with. You can get up in the middle of me talking about it and go to the bathroom. You can doze off. Yet in these simple words are the power of new life. Last week, we saw how Jesus compared it to an acorn, an acorn that you could crush beneath your feet. Yet within that acorn is the potential for a mighty tree whose roots could reach to the heaven, whose branches could reach to the heaven, and whose roots could split concrete. In the same way, Jesus said, this word, this word that is put in the mouths of ordinary people and is contained in simple stories and parables and easy enough for a child to understand contains within it the ability to free the believing soul from the penalty and the power of sin to bring life back from the dead and infuse divine life into the hearer if it is received by faith. Which, if I could just digress for only a minute, is why I take this moment of preaching so seriously. Right? It is why we don't have, we have preachers up here, we don't have speakers. Uh, speakers are these things that hang from the ceiling that help you hear what is being said. Preachers are the ones that open up the word of God and just tell you what it says. We don't give talks here. We don't give talks, we proclaim God's words. Talks might entertain or enlighten you, but I know that the word of God accurately preached can save your soul. Paul, in fact, would compare this act of preaching right here. He would compare it to when Jesus would say to a lame person, be healed. And those simple words, those, those, those reverberations traveling through the air are the power that can make the lame walk and make the blind see if the hearer would receive them by faith. 
I know that when I'm standing up here delivering to you the promises of God, I know that if you believe them, it'll do more than just give you a new perspective. It'll do more than lighten your load and make you feel good. It can impart to you the very power of God, which is why, by the way, I take preparation for the message so seriously. I spend the greater part of my week, every week, studying for 38 minutes on the weekend. Why? Because I want to know what God says so that I can say it to you accurately. I know that I can do a lot of things poorly here at the church, and I probably do, but I know that the most important thing that I'm going to do is stand up in front of you and open up the Word of God and tell you what it says. And I can tell you that not one time in the 16 years that I've been here, not one time have I ever stood up here and felt unprepared to be opening the Word of God. Underqualified, yes. Unworthy, absolutely. Underprepared, no. And I do not say that to you so that you will congratulate me. I I say that because I want you to know how seriously I take this moment. It is everything. It's why when I stand up here, I try hard not to spend most of my time sharing with you my opinions about life and culture. This is not good advice time from Uncle JD. I'm not a life coach. I am a preacher of God's words. I don't dispense good advice. I proclaim good news. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that what I do is rather simple. On the surface, it's rather foolish is the word he used. It doesn't take a lot of skill. I mean, basically, I just read God's words to you, and I try to tell you what I think they mean, and then I yell at you for the remainder of the time. That's my job. And so I study all week long. I study all week long for this moment, and then backstage, I do three things right before I walk out here. I pray and ask God to anoint what I'm saying with power. I check my mic, and I check my zipper because I don't want you to get distracted, which is like a metaphor for my whole job right there, okay? Prepare hard and try not to embarrass the gospel. The power of the gospel is hidden in its simplicity. It is so simple, Jesus said, that a child can get their mind around it and understand it. It is so profound, the apostle Peter says, so profound that the angels long to look into it. Answer me this, is there any other thing that you can think of that is so simple that a five or six-year-old child can understand it and explain it, yet so profound and amazing that it still baffles the angels? I mean, think about what angels have seen. I mean, they had a front row seat to creation. They've seen God split the Red Sea and take Israel through it on dry land and then destroy the Egyptian army that was behind them. They've seen God put words in the mouth of a donkey as he rebuked Balaam for walking away from God. Yet these angels who have seen all these amazing things, according to the apostle Peter, can't get enough of the gospel. And when they want to go deep and they want their minds blown, they sit around and they talk about the gospel. So don't tell me you're bored with it or you're past it that it was something that you used to bring you to salvation, but now you want to learn a bunch of additional stuff. It's why we say that growth in Christ doesn't happen by going beyond the gospel. Real growth in Christ happens by going deeper into the gospel. The best water from the well doesn't happen by widening the circumference of the well, but by going deeper into the well. So you're not going to grow in Christ by learning every possible different outcome in eschatology or the difference in the first and aorist tense in the Greek language or how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or the difference in superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism or however you pronounce those words. You're going to grow in Christ when you grow in the wonder of who God is and what he has done for you in the gospel. And as your soul is overwhelmed by that, then you will spring alive with spiritual fruit. It is simple, yet it contains the power of God. All right, letter C, the beauty of the gospel is hidden in ordinary believers. The beauty of the gospel is hidden in ordinary believers. The instruments of gospel proclamation are ordinary people. Honestly, I sometimes find myself wishing that God saved more impressive people, more athletes, more movie stars, more brilliant intellects. And we can certainly pray that that happens, but I'm just going to tell you it's not God's way. 
I mean, you think about Paul's statement that he, he made in 1 Corinthians. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. No, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. Y'all look around this morning. Look around. Look at the people around you. Okay? In fact, look at your neighbor and say, you are low and despised. You are low and despised. That's why God chose you, because you were weak and you were foolish and you were small. See, God did not want to put on display physical impressiveness. He wanted the glory to belong to him, so he chose ordinary things, broken things, non-impressive things to be the vehicles that carry his glory. Do, if you are a guest here with us, please do not be fooled by the plainness of the package. That is something our enemy uses to keep your mind away from the truth that is really in God's word. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, which is a, a collection of, of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon, trying to explain um, how to, to the junior demon to keep this subject that he's been assigned to confused. And at some point in the book, his subject starts to go to church and the junior demon's like, what do I do? And the senior demon says, easy, just have him focus on the ridiculousness of all the people around him in the church. Help him notice, you know, how they're singing out of tune and how out of style their clothes are and get him distracted with those things because he'll think, well, these people are ridiculous. It must be that the gospel they believe is ridiculous too. I would dare say that that's happening to some of you right now. I mean, you're trying to listen to me, but you cannot get over the weird haircut of the guy three rows in front of you. Or you know the problems that are involved in some Christians' lives or, or you've seen the way that they drive or you're listening to me right now. You're like, well, he's not that impressive. He doesn't even sound that smart. And you're thinking it must not be a true thing because he's not impressive and they're not impressive. But I'm telling you, that's just how God does things. God does not want you to be attracted to our beauty, but to his. So he puts his glory and his truth in broken instruments to see if you're more interested in divine truth or you're more attracted by physical impressiveness. So that's the first thing that we see from this parable is that the gospel's hidden, hidden so that, that most people, most people who are only in search of superficial beauty, most people miss it. Here's the second thing we learn from this parable. We learn that the gospel woos us with a greater joy. I told you that the three words, in his joy, might be the most important words in these two parables. I explained to you that normally if you told a man he'd be losing everything that he owned, he'd be devastated. Yet this man is filled with joy because the value of what he is gaining so eclipses the value of what he's walking away from. Let me just ask you to consider this morning. Is this the metaphor that you would use to describe your discovery of the kingdom of God? That for you, it was like finding a treasure that brought you so much joy that you gladly left everything else in your life behind to possess it. Many of you, if you were honest, you might choose a different image, a different analogy. Maybe you would say, well, discovering the kingdom of God was like encountering a never-ending to-do list of things to constantly feel guilty about that I wasn't doing well enough. Or you might say discovering the kingdom of God is like being tied to a ball and chain around your neck that weighs you down and keeps you from having fun. And you got to wear it, though, if you don't want to go to hell. That's certainly how I first thought about the kingdom of God when I was a teenager. And that just shows us how little we understand who Jesus is and how little we understand what he's offering to us. You see, this parable confronts a deeply ingrained myth in our culture. And the myth is this, that God is upset at us because we want to be happy. In fact, if you're taking notes, write it down this way. God is not upset at you because you want to be happy. Many people think that. I used to think that. 
You see, I, I, I thought sin and the world and independence from God, that was fun. And God wanted me to walk away from all that and get religious. So I always felt like at youth camp, I, I'm sure they weren't actually saying this, but in my unbelieving heart, this is what I heard. I always thought the message at youth camp was, the problem with you teenagers is that you want to be happy. And God wants you to come up here to the altar, and he wants you to get down on your knees and surrender any desire you have to be happy ever so that you can go to heaven. And I'd be like, well, I guess it's better to be miserable in life than to spend eternity in hell, so I'll go forward and sign the commitment card. But y'all, that, I mean, think of it like this. Say that on my wedding day, my wife, Veronica, stood at the altar And the minister said to her, did you write some vows for your marriage? And she said, yes, I did. And she pulls out a card to read her vows. And she says to me and to this pastor, she says, I hereby renounce all my desires for romance, physical intimacy, and happiness to become the wife of JD. I'd be like, whoa, you know, I don't want you to forsake those things for me. I want you to find those things in me. It doesn't glorify God when we serve him out of duty. In fact, here's how you should think about it. God is not upset at you because you want to be happy. He's upset for you because you choose to be happy in things besides him. He's not upset at you because you want to be happy. He's upset for you because you have turned away from him, the living God who can truly satisfy you, and you have sought the things you should be finding in him and worthless idols that cannot make you happy at all, which is why we say that God is a jealous God. God is not jealous because he's insecure. God is jealous for your love because he knows he is the only one who can make you happy, so he is jealous for your sake. Y'all, listen, it does not glorify God when you serve him out of drudgery and duty any more than it would glorify my wife to, to, to be married to her out of drudgery and duty. I mean, to continue on with the marriage analogy, would my wife have been glorified in your eyes if shortly before our marriage you had found me, you know, a few days leading up to our marriage, and I was like, look, yeah, there's actually a bunch of girls that I'm way more attracted to than Veronica. And honestly, I think I'd be much happier with one of those girls if I could marry them, but I just feel like loving Veronica is the right thing to do. I feel like I owe it to her parents. Would you look at me and say, wow, that really glorifies her. What a man of character she is marrying. No, no, that's not glorifying to her at all. She's glorified when I say, you know, once I met Veronica, I lost all my interest in other girls. And that's the way basically it was on our wedding day. You know, we stood there in front of that audience of people and there were other pretty girls out there in that audience. In fact, there were probably one or two girls that at some point in my past, I'd actually had an interest in it. But I could tell you standing up there on that altar in front of everybody else, I wasn't thinking about the girls that I was leaving behind. I was consumed with joy at the one that God had given to me. And it was joy over her that made leaving all the other girls an act of just total worthlessness because I was consumed with joy, not sorrow over what I was walking away from. That's how Jesus wants us to feel about him. And you see, it is that joy and that kind of joy alone that can sustain the Christian life. It's the reason that some of you can't make it as a Christian, is that you're trying to follow Jesus through the strength of your resolve and the strength of your will, and you've never been consumed with the joy of who Jesus is. It's why Nehemiah in the Old Testament said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It is joy in Jesus that gives me me strength to obey. Where does the motivation to obey come from? It doesn't come from resolve and self-will. The motivation comes to obey when you are consumed with a, a greater joy in what you're obtaining than you are a, a sorrow for what you're, you're, you're leaving. I thought of this this week as I was preparing this. I, I call it a classic story here at the Summit Church, which just means I've told it a bunch. But I checked my records, and for me, um, stories have an 18-month statute of limitations. 
Okay, so once I pass that, then I can go back. And so I haven't told this in 18 months. But um, when I was in uh, college, uh, my job as a senior in college was I became a coach of a 12 and 13-year-old boys club soccer team. Okay, and, and uh, we were good. We went undefeated the entire season. And so we made it to the playoffs, which was a big deal. And, you know, uh, teams from all over the state came in. And my guys, they were just so amped up. And we just, I mean, we were confident. We, nobody could beat up. We had this little ritual they did where they would spit on the ground um, before the game started. And they'd make mud and they'd wipe their faces on it so they looked like a scene out of Braveheart. And, man, they just, they did, they just strutted onto that field. We played under lights. It was like, it was a big deal to these 12 and 13-year-old boys. They, we strutted out on that field and we got killed. Uh, I mean, the, the final score doesn't reflect it. We only lost three to one, but it was just, if you know anything about soccer, it was one of those games where the other team had control of the ball the entire game. Um, and they had this one player on their team who was just the best player we'd encountered, number 17, number 17. And uh, it was Michael Jordan with the soccer ball. That's how I describe this player. I mean, any time that, I mean, it's just, it, dom- we got dominated. And I was, frankly, I was, I was sick of it. And so uh, 10 minutes left to go in the second half, we're losing two to one. 10 minutes left to go. And I, so I pulled out our best fullback, whose name was David. And I said, David, I am sick and tired of number 17. He said, me too, coach. I hate that. that I hate that play. I said, don't go there yet. Um, but, 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 but here's the deal. We cannot let number 17 get another shot on goal. You understand? Yes, sir. I, I, said, I said, David, I, I'm going to give you one assignment for the remainder of this game. Your one assignment is to make sure number 17 does not get a shot on goal. You understand? Yes, sir, coach. David, I don't care if the guy next to you burst into flames. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is number 17. Yes, sir, coach. Anytime they step foot in the penalty box and they're going to take a shot, you make sure they don't get that shot off. Yes, sir, coach. He turns around. I think he may even give me a little salute. And he turns around to run back on the field. He got about 10 feet away from me. I was like, David, do it legally. Do it legally. He goes, okay, of course. And he runs back on the field, right? So, um, you know, game resumes, and, um, and here comes number 17. It does something down there in the, the, the right corner of the field. Our left fullback is left in the field position crying for his mom. Um, uh, brings the ball back in there. It is number 17, our stopper, our, our goalie. Number 17 does a pump fake. Who does that in soccer? Does a pump fake, and both the stopper and the goalie just sort of fly out of the picture. It's number 17 and a wide-open goal, and I'm like, doggone it, this is it. This is the end of the game right here. When out of the left side of my peripheral vision comes this blur, okay? It's David, the fullback, all right? Like a tractor beam locked on, number 17. And I'm like, what is he doing? All right, so, so number 17 is in this beautiful, just, you know, kind of posture, ready to just kick the ball right through the goal. David hits this player from behind, okay? Full, like, spread eagle attack. Looks like Batman coming in, just like, and there's like a little mushroom cloud of dust that, that pops up there. And it was one of those moments where it was like, you know, it was like time stands still. It was like, everybody's kind of, and nobody could believe what like just happened. And then it was like on cue, everybody, everybody in the field got angry for different reasons. But in the, in the one moment, everybody gets angry. Their team was angry because they thought that we tried to take out their star player. Um, uh, the referee's angry because he's like, I, can you give a 12-year-old a red card and throw him out of the game? Um, uh, our team is angry because they knew that David just handed this other team a penalty kick in the penalty box that they were sure to score on. Our parents are angry because they think psycho coach sent this kid in to take out this, this player. I'm angry because I'm like, what is he doing? So the only person who's not angry is David. David stands up and then he dusts himself off and reaches down and makes sure the other player is okay and helps them to their feet, you know, and just kind of make sure things okay. Then David turns around, turns around 180 degrees, looks, you know, 40 yards across the field and goes, like that. 
Now at this point, I'm thinking lawsuit, right? So I'm like, David, what is wrong with you? So I, you know, I pulled David out of the game. He comes just running over, just as innocent, carefree, and gets about 10 feet away from me. And I start yelling at him. I'm doing this for the sake of the parents. I'm like, David, what is wrong with you, son? Where's your brain? Point to your brain. And this perfectly little innocent 12-year-old, he points at his, his brain, and he's like, I was like, David, what are you thinking? And he gets this little indignant look on his face and said, Coach, you told me to take her out illegally. Illegally. The last thing he had thought that I said to him before he took the field was, hey, man, make it nasty. Like, just end the game right here. <laughs> now, here's what's, there are two things that are amazing about this story. Number one, number one, David came up to me about four years ago and introduced himself at the Apex campus. He's now married. He goes to our church, right? So that's, that's amazing thing number one. Amazing thing number two is in his, in his little 12-year-old mind, in his 12-year-old mind, um, he was thinking, he knew he was a good enough player that he knew what was going to happen when he did that. He knew that he would probably, you know, get a yellow card or a red card. He knew his parents would probably ground him. He knew he might get jumped after the game. He knew all those things. But none of that stuff mattered to him at all. One thing mattered to David. You know what it was? The coach's smile, right? Because he thought, if he thought, if my coach is happy with me, then it doesn't matter who is against me because I've got more joy in my coach's pleasure than I do sorrow over all these bad things happening to me. Now, that's not a great way if you're a 12-year-old to go through life. Let me just say that right now, all right? But I will tell you that following Jesus is something similar to that, where you begin to have more joy in the pleasure of Jesus, in the possession of Jesus, and the glory of Jesus than you do after anything that is behind. And it's where you get the strength to obey, even when it's hard. And until you're consumed with joy, you'll never be filled with the confidence and the resolve to obey. The joy of the Lord is your strength to obey. The joy of the Lord becomes your contentment in the mundane. It becomes your contentment in the mundane. Some of you have, you feel like boring lives. Maybe you have a boring job or maybe you're a student and you feel like that's just monotonous. Maybe you're a, a mom and feels like, oh, it's changing diapers, just gets so old. When you have the joy of the Lord, it gives you motivation and contentment, even the mundane. Here's the example I'll use. Um, if you at your job were told by your boss that you were given a special assignment and it was to lick envelopes, you had 5,000 envelopes you needed to lick and get into the mail. Now, you would just be like, what a terrible job, right? I mean, how boring. You come home and you're like, I had the worst day. It was so boring. Just lick envelopes all day. But what if you found out that you got a $10,000 bonus for every single envelope you licked? Do you think your day would go poorly? Every time you do it, you'd just be happy and giddy as you're licking another envelope, right? Well, see, it, 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 when, you, when you're consumed with the joy of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and what it means to please him and, and to have heavenly reward, it makes even the mundane things have a motivation because the joy is not in them, it's in the one that you're pleasing. The joy of the Lord becomes your, your strength and your hope in the midst of trials. It means that even when you go through the darkest times where there is genuine pain, even that has a different feel to it because you know the joy that you're headed into is going to swallow up the pain that you're in right now. And it gives you endurance even in the midst of real and genuine pain. I'm not trying to take away from your pain or to say that it's nothing. I'm just saying that the joy of the Lord becomes a way to endure it. The example I've used over the years, it's one of my favorites, is um, I, I told you it's like if you found out, if you found out today that there was an uncle you never knew you had who left you $100 million dollars. And it's at the bank. You just got to go pick it. You got to go sign a form and it's going to transfer into your account $100 million. So you're driving over to the bank, um, you know, on Monday and you're going to sign the papers and, and right before you, about a half mile for the bank and your car breaks down. 
I promise you, not a one of you is going to get out of the car and kick it and swear at the car and shake your fist at the heavens and say, why me, God? You're not going to do that, right? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna leave the car there. You're not going to care. And you're going to skip the rest of the way to the bank. Why? Because the joy over what you're about to obtain makes the loss of the car seem absolutely insignificant. And there's a sense at which the joy of Jesus, when it fills your heart and possesses your vision, it gives you the ability to even go through darkness and pain with a sense of hope because you know the joy is going to make up for and erase and take away one day what you're experiencing now. The gospel woos us with greater joy. I know that so many of you are missing this, and honestly, it's why you're so miserable. You got no idea the potential joy that is there in the Christian life. You just have no concept of it. In fact, it reminded me of one of my favorite memory verses um, this week, Psalm 4-7. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You got more joy in my heart than they have when they get a new car, or when they get a new a raise at work, or when their stocks multiply, or when everything goes right. I got more joy in you than they've ever known. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about a different kind of joy, a better joy than what you get from food or friends or riches. Have you ever had the experience of entering a new phase of life? That gives you a joy in something that you just didn't even know that you could have before. You fall in love. You have a kid. You get established in your career, and you think, wow, I never knew. I never even knew what I was missing. But if you were to try to go back and explain this to your former self, your former self wouldn't get it. If I could use a time turner and go back to five-year-old JD, and I could tell five-year-old JD that one day, one day you're going to meet somebody named Veronica, and she is more wonderful than any of your Davy Crockett records. And one day you're going to have kids, and they're going to be more wonderful, and you're going to love them so much more than you love these trinkets that you have. And you said all this to five-year-old JD. You said, this is your future. You should look forward to it. Five-year-old JD would say, I'm not going to have candy in that future. And five-year-old JD, 32-year-old JD, present-day JD would say back to five-year-old JD, listen, kid. You're going to experience things in the future that are going to make candy seem like absolutely nothing. But five-year-old J.D. wouldn't get it. You see, that's us. God offers us real happiness, real happiness. And essentially we say, yeah, God, but is there going to be candy? Is there going to be candy? And God says, you don't even know the question you're asking. Number three, number three we see from this parable that the gospel requires leaving it all. Y'all notice that both of the men in these parables had to leave literally everything else to possess this treasure. That was the requirement, no conditions, no refusals. I would say that many of us want to have the treasure in the field without having to let go of anything. And many of us have convinced ourselves that we can have Jesus and not sell everything, so to speak. So instead of surrendering to Jesus, we do the next best thing, we think. We kind of salve our consciences with the next best thing. We just get religious, right? Because religion is a way of paying God off. It's a way of meeting whatever you think is the minimum requirement to keep God on your side and keep him from being against you and cursing you and throwing you in hell. Many of you have substituted surrender for religious activity, but I'm going to tell you that's not repentance. That's not joy. That's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. God is not interested in people who get involved in Christianity to keep him off of their back. He is interested in those who see in him a treasure of greater value than anything else on earth and would gladly leave everything else to possess him. It's why the second question we ask anybody who's being baptized here at the Summit Church, we say, are you willing to go wherever he tells you to go and do whatever he tells you to do? 
Sometimes people have said to me, um, and I always appreciate their honesty, they'll say, you know, I'm not really sure what you're asking right now, but I mean, are you saying I literally have to give up all my money if I want to possess Jesus? I had a really honest talk with a guy this week in my office who accepted Christ, and he said, man, he goes, I, I don't know what it means to walk away from it all right now. And I'm afraid that there might be things that Jesus might tell me to walk away from later that I won't have the strength to do when he tells me. So I described the process of conversion to him like this. It's very simplistic, but I said, it, conversion is like discovering one day that you're in a car that you stole from Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus just appears in the passenger seat and says, hey, man, you stole my car. Right? Conversion is acknowledging, yes, I stole your car, and this belongs to you. And Jesus says, don't get out. Keep driving. But from here on out, I'm going to tell you where to turn. I'm going to tell you what to do. And when I tell you to turn, I want you to turn. I'm going to tell you to slow down. I want you to slow down. At that point, you keep driving, and you wait for his instruction. I told this guy, I said, so, so you're in the driver's seat of your car. It's stolen from Jesus. For you to come to Christ means you acknowledge that, and you wait for his instruction. And he's going to tell you somewhere up there, he's going to say, I want you to go left, or I want you to go right. And you're going to you say, I'm going to obey that when he tells me. And he's going to tell you to slow down or speed up. And you're also going to trust that when he tells you what he wants you to do, he's going to give you the strength to do it. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean that you know the route yet. It doesn't mean that you have the strength or the wisdom to pursue the route. It just means you acknowledge the car belongs to him and that you are in a posture of saying, wherever you tell me to go and whatever you tell me to do, I recognize it belongs to you and I'm going to follow you. Coming to Jesus means that you may not be sure where he's leading you or that you'll have the strength to obey, but you recognize he is the one treasure you'd never want to be without. For this guy that I was talking to, his first step was baptism, as it is for many people. Right? He knew that this was the area where this is the first thing Jesus was telling him, and he said, I'll do that. He trusted Christ, and he's, he's, he's in the queue to be baptized here coming up very shortly. Well, let me close all this with a great story, I think, that summarizes everything that we learn here in these parables. Um, in Cairo, I, I've actually never seen this personally. I hope to one day. But in Cairo, in a very out-of-the-way location, there's a small, dusty grave that you would never know was there if you weren't looking for it. Yet that grave contains the body of one of America's potentially richest men who ever lived. His name is William Borden. William Borden was, um, lived around the time of the turn of the century, 19th, 20th century. Um, he graduated from Yale in 1909, and he was the heir to the Borden Milk Company. Now, the Borden Milk Company is still a big company today, but back in the early 1900s, it was one of America's largest companies. It was millions and millions of dollars in, in, in work, and it was going to be handed to him. Well, while William Borden was at Yale, he encountered Jesus Christ, and Jesus totally changed his life. And he began to get less interested in all the things that he'd been groomed for, and he just was started to plunge into who Jesus was. And in his Bible, in his Bible that somebody had given him, he just he opened up the flyleaf and he wrote the word, no rivals, no rivals. Well, right after he graduated college, he sensed that God was calling him to go be a missionary to Muslims in Egypt. And so he told his parents, it's like, hey, I, I'm not going to take the company. I'm not going to, I'm going to turn down the inheritance. You give it to somebody else. God's called me to be a missionary. And his parents, and I guess you could understand this, but they were upset. They're like, you're groomed for this. We want you to have it. And they told him he was foolish and he didn't have any idea what he was walking away from. But he, he stood his ground and he said, I can't. I've got to obey Jesus, even if it means turning my back on you and, and all these things that you want to offer me. And, and the way I heard the story is he opened up his flyleaf of his Bible and he wrote the word, no refusal. No refusal, the, uh, right under the word, no rival. No rival, no refusal. I won't say no to Jesus on anything. He boarded a ship and went to Egypt as a missionary to Muslims in Egypt, where after being there four months, he contracted spinal meningitis and died. 
just a few days before he died, and he knew he was going to die because they, they, were, they couldn't find the medical help they needed, a friend asked him, they said, hey, you walked away from all this, and you came over here, and you're dying four months later. And uh, Borden took out his Bible and opened the flyleaf and showed him where he'd written the third words, no regrets, no regrets. And today his grave, again, I've never seen it, but his grave has a very, his name, a very short description of his life. And then it has the phrase, listen to this, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Or you could rephrase that, apart from joy in Jesus, there's no possible way for you to say no regrets. But with joy in Jesus, there's no possible way for you not to say it. Because even if you, like William Borden, turn and walk away from everything, you'll say no regrets because I possess Jesus for eternity. And you'll say with Martin Luther, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever, and I belong to it forever. It is a treasure in a field. My question for you is, have you come to this place? Have you come to a place where you say no rivals? Have you come to a place where you say no refusals? Because if so, I promise you, you will get to a place one day where you will say no regrets. He's a treasure that you discover that for joy over who he is, you walk away from everything. Let me ask you, have you come to a place where you've seen him as that treasure and received him as such? Or do you still have refusals? Why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses if you would. I'm gonna give you a very specific and very tangible way that I want you to respond to this. I want everybody to take their hands. Just keep, you know, keep your heads bowed at all campuses. I want you to just make sure there's nothing in them. Put your hands right in front of you. I'm going to go through a small series of things that the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. And if you're ready to obey him in these areas, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I want you just to not only tell God in your heart, God, I'll do this. I want you to open your hands, symbolic of the fact that you're letting go control of this area. And you're saying, yes, Jesus. For some of you, you've never actually received Christ. You've never crossed the line of faith. You've never made the decision. And right now, you're going to say, Jesus, I'm going to give you my whole life. I surrender it all to you. I receive you as my Savior. Save me, Jesus. And just show that right now by opening your hands. Just open your hands and say, I receive you, Jesus, as my Savior. Some of you have accepted Christ, but you've never been baptized. And that's the first thing he's telling you to do. And I want you to open up your hands right now to saying, yes, yes, I'm ready to start following. How about this one? Some of you have accepted Christ. Maybe you're a teenager, high school student, college student. But you've never really given your whole life to Jesus. You've never really said to him, I'll go wherever you tell me to go and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. My whole life belongs to you. You tell me and I'll go. And right now, you could just open up your hands and just say, Jesus, you can have it all. You can have my whole life. Tell me what you want me to do. God's been speaking to some of you about a career change. Maybe to go with one of our church plans, maybe to go overseas. And maybe right now, you just hold up in your hands and say, yes. Or at least, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go down this path see where you lead me. My yes is on the table. For some of you, God's been telling you to go on a mission trip, take your family on a mission trip, and you just hadn't done it. Open up your hands and say, I'll do it. 
Some of you, God's been telling you to get involved financially, to give the first and the best of what he gives to you back to him, and you've been resisting it, and you just say, yes, I surrender. How about couples we have in here who are living in immorality? Maybe you're living together, and you know it's not according to the plan of God, and this morning, you'll just open up your hands and say, yes, yes, I will surrender this to you because, Jesus, we need you in our relationship more than we need the convenience of living together or the pleasures of sex before marriage. You matter more to us. Right now, make it a moment of surrender. Maybe it's one of these or maybe it's something else that I didn't name. But would you just do business with the Holy Spirit? As our worship teams come and they lead us, would you just express your surrender to God? I pray in Jesus' name that you would give the faith and the vision to have joy, a joy that will leave control behind and embrace surrender to Christ. I pray in Jesus' name.